you for joining us today at Renovatus, a church for people under renovation. If you have a prayer need, would like to talk with a pastor, or want to share how this message impacts you, we would love to hear from you. Email us at info at renovatuschurch.com. If you desire to support us in the work we are doing for the kingdom of God in Charlotte, you can give online at renovatuschurch.com. We hope you are truly blessed by today's message. Uh, so good to see everyone this morning. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles open to Ephesians 6. So we will be um, finishing up our Together series. How have we felt about this series? Has it been good? Have you enjoyed it? Um, it's good. It's good to hear. Uh, those who didn't say yes, just hold your nose till later and complain. Um, I have enjoyed it. It's a tough series to, to preach. It's a lot to work through. It's a lot to work through, because, especially in, in our day and time. It's a lot to work through in 30 to 35 minutes on a Sunday because there's so much there to unpack and there's so much nuance even in what Paul has written. Some scholars believe that Paul wrote this with a sense of urgency. Um, that is why it is so short and succinct and it sometimes seems a little discombobulated. I don't know that I buy that. I think Paul is building a pretty strong argument. He ends with a kind of interesting object lesson that, or word picture, which we're going to talk about today. But I think overall, um, Paul achieved his purposes, if it was Paul. The writer achieved his purposes in this letter. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to conclude this series um, by, by looking at how Paul ends it, because what I think Paul is doing here in a lot of ways is Paul is tying up some of the loose ends that he's kind of left dangling um, in, the, in the earlier parts of the letter. Maybe not tying them up, but reaffirming some things in a different way that he had said earlier in the letter. And, uh, you know, due to the time restraints, I couldn't bring in my full, you know, armor of God. I'm playing. I wouldn't have done that anyway. Um, <clears throat> statue. Uh, but let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of, flesh, of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day. Notice this connection to last week where he talked about the days being evil. So this is in the same stream of consciousness here on that evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, <clears throat> and, have, and having done everything to stand firm, stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist. And put on the breastplate of righteousness. As shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith. With which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. <clears throat> take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert and always persevere in supplication for all the saints. 
Pray also for me, so that when I speak, a message may be given to me to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it boldly as I must speak. What I want to do to kind of start us off on this, um, on this concluding sermon of the Together series is to work backwards a bit from here and kind of recover some of the bases we've touched on thus far. And then we'll come back around full circle and deal a little bit with what Paul has uh, offered us in his concluding remarks to this letter. Uh, so taking our first step backwards, last week we talked about how evil days have a way of overwhelming us. Um, hopefully we've had better weeks than some of us had last week, but maybe not. Maybe some of you have had just as bad and horrible and busy weeks this week as you did last week. And so there's this constant reminder in the scriptures that when life gets overwhelming, um, to turn our attention to the right things, and particularly in Ephesians here, um, what Paul exhorts the church to do is that in these evil days, in these troubling times, to not be given to the temptation just to numb ourselves as one might with alcohol or as one might just to get away and escape, to not have that kind of posture towards the evil days, but to have a posture of being filled with the Spirit, that when life is overwhelming, be filled with the Spirit as you sing songs together, collectively. So we have this exhortation of getting together, assembling together in the midst of days that are overwhelming and evil, uh, but also to make melody in our hearts, to, uh, to have this personal lifestyle of worship, if you will. And I didn't touch on this much last week because Paul mainly uses the language of singing and, and making melody, but there's all kinds of ways we can worship in our own personal lives, right? Uh, our lives, even, and our behaviors and our actions are actions of worship, showing our commitment and showing our love and our appreciation for what God has done in our lives, living in response to God's action in our lives. And so when Paul covered this last week, on the one hand he says, hey, you can't just fall into debaucherous living, which is wasteful living, wasting away, not doing anything, living drunk on wine, or in our culture I think we get drunk on a whole lot of things uh, that consume our time and take us away and kind of numb us away from reality or numb us from reality. Uh, so that's one way Paul says you can respond, but he says don't respond that way. On the other hand, he says to be filled with the Spirit actively. The language there is, is, is active language, to be actively filled with the Spirit as we worship together and in our hearts. One response to the evil days is over, uh, uh, one response to overwhelming evil days is a response that is passive and wasteful. The other response is a response that is active and fulfilling. The week before that, we talked about Paul and pe uh, peacemaking in, in Ephesians, where Paul talks about us acting like the beloved children of God. Um, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And we see Paul enjoining that peacemaking language as he talks about living in unity. And he, in particular, he uses this language of taking off Remember I used the analogy of a soldier who takes off his uniform? Um, that's a term they sometimes use when they leave the military. And it's not that they haven't changed uniforms in the, the entire time they were in the military. What they're saying is they're taking off the clothing that once held their identity, that, that once most defined them as a person. 
And Paul uses that same language. He says, listen, take off the old stuff and put on some new things. Here are some new clothes for you to wear. And, and, and then, of course, Ephesians is helping us figure out how to fit in those clothes a little bit. Um, but here are some new clothes you have to wear. And, and this is a new way of living, a new way of finding your identity, a new way of, uh, of your personhood being defined. And that is in Christ. And, of course, that is also in community and all these other things that Paul um, lifts up in the letter to Ephesians. So this language of taking off and putting on actually is very important for our sermon today because uh, Paul is talking about putting on the whole armor of God. So this is part of the wardrobe that Paul is talking about us putting on is found here in Ephesians um, chapter 6 in these closing remarks. The week before that we look at Ephesians 4 and the call to lead a life worthy of the gospel. In particular, in that text, we looked at how the call, to, uh, the, the life that is worthy of the gospel following that call um, is lived out by us being truth-tellers, uh, by us also sharing our gifts for the equipping of the church and for the pursuit of a life of unity and oneness with those with, with whom we may have had major disagreements with. Um, and, and that's based on all of these things that Paul's been talking about in this second half of Ephesians are based on this theology that he proposes in the first half of the letter. Um, these commitments to practical Christian living are founded on the assertion that there was a cosmic plot twist to the promise, promises of the Hebrew Bible or, or of the Old Testament. In particular, this plot twist was that it was God's desire from the beginning to bring all people, not just Jews, not just those who felt close to God, but in Paul's language to even bring those that were far from God together, right? Uh, and not just bring them together to where they sit on two sides of the church and, and sing the same songs but never get along, but Paul in Ephesians 2 talks about the fact that Christ has torn down the walls of hostility between us um, and brought these two people groups in, in, in his context Jew and Gentile, those that saw the world, saw God, saw life very differently, and yet now in Christ are being called to find a common identity as the community of God in Christ. And we've talked a lot about how that carries over into our context, right? Like how do we as the church become people um, that are welcoming to those with whom we used to be very hostile towards, those with whom we have huge disagreements with, maybe about politics or about God or about theology or about whatever. What does it look like when, when individuals from different backgrounds and different places and, and different ideologies come together and find community in Christ? And, and this is founded on this theology that, that God has given us this plot twist. Paul calls it a mystery, this mystery, this thing which we did not know, this thing which we did not expect, at least the Jews didn't know or expect, um, has now happened. And there are Jews and Gentiles worshiping the same God together in community, claiming to be formed, spiritually formed together. Uh, sealed not with a covenant like old, but sealed, Paul says, with the Holy Spirit itself in their hearts. Uh, not just a covenant written with words, not just a covenant sealed with blood, but a covenant that is sealed in the heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so the first half of Ephesians emphasizes this cosmic shift where God brings all things under the headship of Christ. 
and tears down all social, cultural, religious barriers that once defined the diverse Ephesian society. I think it goes without saying, um, and I've said it many times, but let's just be reminded that that kind of social reconstruction is not easy, right? That kind of bringing people together to form a new community in the shape of Christ, it's hard work. And, and that is why Paul spends so much time in the last half of the letter helping us work through that in some really, really tough passages. And y'all, we have, we have worked through some really, really tough passages. There's been a few times where I've kind of dreaded even coming up and talking about some of the things we've, we've had to dig into here. Because some of it's just hard to say and it's hard to, hard to say with enough nuance in 30 to 35 minutes to really get to the bottom of what Paul was driving at. And y'all, we didn't even touch the household codes in this series. We didn't even go to wives, submit yourselves to your husbands or any of that stuff. Uh, and I, that's not my choice. That's the lectionary. Praise be to God, right? Um, so, yeah. So thank you, lectionary. Uh, but if you want that sermon, you can find it on our podcast. I preached it in January and it's out there. Uh, but that's, a, uh, that's not included in this. But that is a prime example of the kind of instruction that needs to be given whenever you call people who have been accustomed to living a certain way um, with certain power structures, with certain walls between them, and with certain defined roles, and then they come together, and according to Acts 2, the Spirit is pouring out on all flesh, men and women, sons and daughters. They're prophesying, they're dreaming, they're envisioning together, and so Paul has to offer some more instruction on what that looks like in the household, household even, whenever those in Christ have found themselves with a new identity than maybe the one, the one that they once held. Um, whether that just be the social identifier of a woman's, a wife's role, a slave's role, a child's role, etc., etc., etc. So we see this is difficult work, and Paul spends some time really trying to help his readers through that. Um, and so now, working through, after working through all of that, Paul concludes this letter with one of the most vivid word images in the New Testament. Something that if any of you have been raised in church any amount of time, you have probably heard a sermon on the armor of God. Can I get a witness this morning, right? All right. And that's why it makes this passage hard to preach as well, because it's like everybody knows the sermon on the armor of God. Um, and if you're really good, you remember all the pieces, you know, and how they... You know, how the salvation is supposed to protect your mind and all these kind of things. Uh, that is one way of preaching it. I, I don't have the time uh, or, or real interest in doing it that particular way. Um, but you're probably familiar with that way because this is a very powerful word image in the New Testament. This image of a Roman soldier and the Roman soldier's attire. Now, there's some debate on this, uh, whether this is like Paul's final pep-up speech before he closes the letter, kind of like a motivational object lesson, uh, or whether he's digging into something deeper here that we need to pay more attention to. And so this week, as I, as I was preparing to close Ephesians, I did something interesting. I went to my Bible app. I don't know if anyone has that, the one that reads to you. And I put Ephesians on loop, and I just listened to Ephesians over and over and over and over. I don't know how many times I listened to it. Every time I was by myself or in my car, I plugged it in, I put it on Ephesians. That's what I listened to over and over and over again. 
And I just got to tell you, for me, in listening to the letter read over and over and over again, it really does sound like this final concluding kind of motivational object lesson, all right? This, okay, now let's take everything we've talked about and put some flesh and blood on it. Let's, let's, let's give some imagery to it now uh, that you might recognize. And Paul probably uses this imagery because more so than the Ephesians, he was probably well acquainted with a Roman soldier's attire. But when we read this text on a cursory reading, some of you might have picked up on a couple of complications that we might have with this text. First of all, we have uh, this complication of language and war, uh, excuse me, language of war and weapons being used, um, and violence even kind of connected with this imagery, which seems to be at odds with Paul's earlier language talking about the peace of Christ and talking about making peace with one another even. So that's one complication we're going to briefly deal with. And a second complication in this text that I think we need to deal with before we talk about it too much is this complication of, um, of the concept of rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, of this present darkness, spiritual forces, and heavenly places. Because if you're like me, you're kind of left scratching your head after that one, right? Like, and I've read all kinds of books on what this could mean, and still there's some mystery surrounding it. What exactly are these rulers, authorities, cosmic powers in the present darkness, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I mean, it sounds like some really crazy stuff, some stuff that um, we would probably need Space Force to take care of for us. But um, who knows? So we have these complications, but I think the text itself um, untangles some of this for us. In keeping with the early church's commitment to pacifism and nonviolence, Paul reminds his readers early on in this um, in this vivid imagery, that we do not fight against blood and flesh. That human beings are not the ones in which we are in battle with. And now this does not seem to be like an instance by instance thing for Paul. Like he's not saying in this instance you're not to fight against blood and flesh. But given the behavior of the early church up until around 300, um, we see a church that was committed very strongly to nonviolence, even in the face of great persecution, who, even when their families were being martyred, did not lift a sword to defend themselves or those who were being harmed. Um, so it seems like Paul is calling back to that tradition, which obviously would be very real to the persecuted church that he's writing to here, and he's reminding them that our battle is not against blood and flesh. It's not against other humans. There's something greater going on here. And Paul is not using the Roman soldier attire as a literal example to be followed, uh, despite how some sermons tend to preach it. Um, he is not using it as a literal example, but he's using it as an ironic example. Because this soldier will put shoes on that will make him or her ready to proclaim what? The gospel of peace. Um, so that's an ironic turn, right? This soldier who is armed up for battle will proclaim, and his marching orders even, if we can use that language, the marching orders will be to preach the gospel of peace. And so what about these rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces? Um, now undoubtedly Paul is referencing 
some enemies from the spiritual realm or from the realm of the spirit. But that may not be all Paul is talking about when he uses this language. Now the ancient Ephesians, if you know much about them, and Dan Kava did a great job starting off this series and informing us a little bit about the ancient Ephesian culture and their superstitions and, and, and their mystery religions and some of the things that they really bought into. Um, but if you know much about them, they would have understood this language as being disembodied spirits that have control over humans. Um, a little bit more so than our modern society likes to imagine or think about. The Ephesians had, um, had a strong belief in the influence of spirits on material things. I mean, if, even if you remember, it's in Ephesus where Paul goes and preaches in the book of Acts, and they send pieces of his garment torn up back to people, and they're healed when the pieces of garment get back to them. Um, in some circles in the Pentecostal church, we still practice that, right? Prayer cloths, where we take a cloth and we pray for someone in their place and then we send it to them kind of as a reminder that someone has prayed for them. But to the Ephesians, they believed in many ways that the spirit was transferred into this cloth and then was sent to them. And so this idea of the spirits having an effect on the temporal world was, was kind of at the top of, uh, of, of superstitions for the Ephesians. So when Paul writes this, he, that's what he means. That's what they would read it as. This idea that there are spiritual forces at work um, that have an effect on human beings and, and is driving them and, and manipulating them. And while this may be a tough sell for us, in, for us enlightened folk, um, I think the current times we find ourselves in serves as a reminder that there are indeed forces bigger than we are and bigger than any one human personality. Amen? Uh, I mean, I don't know sometimes, and maybe it's just my lack of understanding, but sometimes what I see is so inexplicable. The only thing I, I can do is just throw up my hands and say the devil is a lie, right? I mean, it's like, what else can you do sometimes but to look at things and say, yes, there are things going on that are bigger than we are, that there's things at work that are bigger than we are. Um, but however, we, we must not imagine that these are just invisible spirits, all right? And, and that our warfare as Christians, our active warfare as Christians is not just against these invisible disembodied spirits, no. This principality language calls something else to our attention. Because there are principalities of darkness in the here and now that demand our attention. Systems of oppression and poverty, exploitation and abuse, and of wealth and greed. And so Paul is not calling the church here to only engage in warfare that never addresses physical, tangible, real principalities. In fact, what Paul is doing here throughout the letter, Paul is calling the church to active participation in what God is trying to do, right? He's called us to actively participate in it, not to passively like just throw out thoughts and prayers, but to actively engage in the work that follows those kind of requests to God, right? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven is not just us giving all responsibility to God to make things right on the earth, right? It is us confessing to God, putting our trust in God, knowing that God is already at work, 
and then placing ourselves in relationship to that so that we might participate in the mission of God as it is carried out in the world. Amen? Um, so I know that's a lot to kind of compact there, but that is what Paul is doing here. And, and we have to be careful, I think, sometimes. When we talk about spiritual warfare, when we talk about, and I, that language to me is even sometimes difficult because what exactly does that mean? It's, it's, it's sometimes hard to define and understand. So what I like to do is talk about what it's not. And what it's not is some kind of passive posture towards the evil of our days. That's not what it is. Um, the call to put on the armor of God is a call to actively be on the defense and the offense, um, carrying out and participating in what God is already at work doing in the world. So there are these principalities. And so let's just take a moment as I, we close up this, this letter to look at Paul's wardrobe list. Now I'm going to remove the Roman soldier attire. You can see the connections there. Because what Paul is really talking about are these particular um, pieces of spiritual wardrobe, if you will, that we are to put on. We're taking off the works of the flesh. We're taking off these things that once defined our former lives. We're taking off the way of violence. We're taking off the way of hostility. We're taking off the way of being, wall, uh, of being builders of walls rather than builders of bridges. And this is what we're putting on. Truth, righteousness, good news, peace, faith, the Word of God, which by the way is not necessarily the Bible. It is the inspired spoken Word of God. Um, the canon wasn't even completed when Ephesians was penned. This is something more that Paul is talking about. Not just the Bible, but the inspired speech or the inspired words of God. Uh, salvation and prayer. Now, and we should not hear these necessarily as virtues for ourselves or virtues that we are to own. But according to Paul, these are gifts to be received. Take unto you. Right? Receive these. Put these on. These are gifts of God to be received. And notice here that this is not your armor, but this is whose armor? The armor of God. So these are things which, with which we have been handed, things that we have been called to put on, but we have been handed them through what Christ has done. And again, we've covered a lot of this in the earlier, earlier sermons and don't have time to fill in all these gaps here, but these are things that Paul has argued Christ has already provided for us. Christ has already made the peace that needs to be made. Christ has already torn down the walls of hostility. Christ has already given us these things. So to me, this is the proper ending to a robust and succinct letter. Because what Paul is arguing for in Ephesians is a radical togetherness of previously hostile people groups. You hear that? A radical togetherness of previously hostile people groups. He is proposing in this letter a radical unity that challenges the powers and the power structures of its day. Christian unity, according to this letter, is not the absence of conflict. 
In fact, it's the opposite. It's the working through conflict in love. It's the forgiveness of one another as you work through conflict. It's being angry with one another at times, but not sinning. Of understanding that we are made in God's image with these emotions of anger and frustrations, and they will sometimes bleed over into our relationships with one another in the church. Ephesians closes by reminding us that radical unity and radical togetherness is hard, but worth fighting for. And that the spiritual forces at work in this world would love nothing more than to cause us, the church, to turn on one another, to begin to fight flesh and blood, to be builders of walls, which, by the way, is antichrist, because Christ has already torn down those walls. Our battle is not against one another. Our battle is against the forces among us that seek to divide us, that seek to cause hostility, and that tempt us to thrive on hate and bitterness and our own frustrations. Some of you may have heard of the book, uh, The Art of War. A few years ago, Pressfield, an author last name Pressfield, um, released a book called um, The Art of War, or excuse me, The War of Art, switched that up. The Art of War, he switched it up to The, uh, the War of Art. And this is kind of what Paul, what Paul is doing here in this letter. He is telling us that unity is war. It's tough. It's hard. It requires work. It's not easy. It's difficult. And I know we don't like that language of war and conflict, um, but this is what Paul is advocating for. That unity is worth struggling over, especially the kind of unity that topples the powers and the principalities and the evil structures of our day. Togetherness is war, and we fight for it with the wardrobe of truth, righteousness, good news, peace, faith, words from God, salvation, and prayer. And every week here at Renovatus, we practice this radical togetherness by responding to an invitation, an invitation to eat from the Lord's table where we believe all are welcome and no one is denied. If you will, stand with me. Our musicians come and get ready. Our servers and we will, see, we will read this invitation together. <clears throat> this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it's the Lord who invites you and it is his will that those who want him should meet him here.
Thank you again for joining us. We invite you to send your requests and stories to info at renovatuschurch.com and give by visiting our website, renovatuschurch.com. As we close every service at Renovatus, would you join me in praying the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.